Amen. That's a wonderful song. I uh, almost can't get through that part. He has, though I, accursed. He has, though I, accursed. I, as though him, welcomed home. Amen. Turn with me to First Peter this morning, First Peter chapter two, as we're studying this great letter uh, that's been given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ through His apostle Peter. And this morning we're going to be focused on verses twenty-four and twenty-five. Yeah, verses twenty-four and twenty-five will be our focus. I want to review a little bit as we go toward those verses. We've seen in verses 20 through 23 that to live in a manner which is commendable before God is to live like Jesus, especially in this area of suffering unjustly. This finds favor, or this is commendable before God, to suffer for righteousness' sake, to suffer unjustly, beginning there in verse 20, uh, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? (laughs) Big deal, right? (laughs) You know, you're beaten for your faults, you you know, you should kind of keep your mouth shut and, you know, take your licks, that's really what you deserve, so that's not impressive. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, (laughs) because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Wow. Kind of takes, just takes your breath away. But that's what the Lord has in store for you. He's calling you up. He's calling you to follow me. Follow Jesus. And that's the type of people he's making you and I into to follow him. What a glorious thing he's doing for us, isn't it? Isn't it glorious? I mean, what greater thing can there be to be, to be the clay and Christ is the potter <laughs> molding us into this beautiful image of God himself? I mean, there's nothing better than that. There just isn't. And when we're thinking clearly, God helps us see that. So, a key part of Christ's example there is, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But, listen to this now, but, in verse 23, but he committed himself to him. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. So how was Christ able to bear that unjust suffering? 
and to suffer uh, being misrepresented, being lied about, being unjustly treated. What was going on in his mind as he faced that type of temptation? This is what was going on. He entrusted himself to God. Who judges righteously? That's how he did it. Christ's patience and endurance originated from his trust in God and that God's providence did not make a mistake for him to suffer. He has set this example for us. If, when, how, wrongs which you and I have received will be righted is none of our business It's God's business who judges righteously. And that's what he knew, and that's what he did. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Now, when we reach verse 24, Peter has not changed the subject. But Peter's going to show us in verses 24 and 25 how it is that we actually are enabled to become like Christ. And uh, I'm just going to do 24 and 25. We might take a little sidetrack for some doctrinal issues. This passage relates to Romans 6 that Jamal read. And Peter and Paul are theologically on the same page about this matter that's in verses 24 and 26 here, and it's expounded greatly in Romans 6. So we We'll probably do that, but first we're just going to follow Peter right, right through the text, and then, and then we'll do that, Lord willing, uh, sometime in the next two weeks. But here in verses 24, we're going to find a foundation of how we actually become like Christ. So Peter hasn't changed the subject. Christ, what, committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. The purpose of Christ bearing our sins was that we might die to sin and might live for righteousness. And a significant aspect of living for righteousness is to patiently bear undeserved sufferings as Christ himself did. And we're finding that through Christ we are enabled to die to sin. To die to sin and to live for righteousness is to follow in his footsteps. That's what it is. And so here in verses 24 through 25, Peter transitions from showing us Christ's example and reminds us of his work on our behalf, which enables us to do the very things we're called to do. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it because we die to sin. That's how we're going to do it. And how are we going to die to sin? Through Christ's work on the cross. 
That's how we're going to do it. That's Peter's logic in this verse, in these verses. We need to think about that. He enables us to do the things we're called to do. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, or that we might die to sin, might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, let's begin with what Christ did on our behalf. We just sung it. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Christ came to be more than an example. So far we've been studying Christ as an example. And apostate liberal theology basically will say, well, that's the big thing. The big thing is Christ is our example. Well, that is a big thing, but it's not the big thing. (laughs) And Peter immediately shows us that Christ came to do more than just to be an example. He came to bear our sins. The phrase, bore our sins, of course, comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Much of Peter's content is coming out of Isaiah 53. 53, verse 12 reads, Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. Isaiah 53, 12. The preceding verses in Isaiah 53 leave us in no doubt what he bore our sins means. What does that mean that he bore our sins? Isaiah 53 verse 8 says this, For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. That's what it means to bear sins. He was cut off for the sins or the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. God's stroke of justice that is resolved to cut off every sinner Right? It doesn't read, the soul that sins, it shall live. No. It doesn't read that way. The soul that transgresses, it shall die. Correct? That's right. The soul that sins will be struck down. Cut off. That's what it means. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. That's what it means to bear sins. That he bore sins. Isaiah 53.10 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, literally, when you make his soul a sin offering, according to the law of Moses, God set all this up ahead of time so we couldn't miss it, so that we could not misunderstand it when He sends His Son into the world to do it. And thus we have God makes His soul a sin offering. That clearly refers to the sin offerings established in the Mosaic Law. Of course it does. All of this is coming out of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He justifies many by being condemned himself. We just sang it. He justifies many by what? Bearing their iniquities. So bearing the guilt and resultant punishment due to our sins. He substitutes for us under God's judgment of sin. That's what it means that He bore our sins. Who Himself bore our sins, what? In His own body on the tree. That's where it took place. Peter is referring to our Lord's death by crucifixion, isn't he? On the tree is a reference to the law, reference to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Cursed by God. Okay. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Was in the song we just sung. All this terminology is in that great song we just sung. It's all coming straight out of Scripture. He bore our sin in His own body on the tree. Amazing. The sufferings of Christ are a manifestation of two things. The sufferings of Christ are a manifestation of God's judicial anger toward us because of our sins against Him. God is judiciously angry. Righteously angry toward every sinner who violates His law. So the sufferings of Christ are a manifestation of this righteous judicial rage. That these sufferings Two, that these sufferings were intended to remove God's judicial anger toward us is an incomprehensible expression of His love toward us. Those two things. And they go together. And they must never be separated to understand the gospel correctly. Some fall in the trap of only preaching about the supposed incomprehensible love of God. 
And they don't want to make us squirm when we think about God's incomprehensible justice. No, that is wrong. Others have the problem of just speaking about his incomprehensible justice. And they don't go to the higher step. The incomprehensibility of his love. That's another mistake. These two things that the sufferings of Christ demonstrate. That's right. God's judicial anger toward us is also an incomprehensible expression of His love toward us. Those sufferings remove that. Well, although Peter doesn't expand on the judicial aspect of bore our sins, but Peter mentions another important purpose for Christ bearing our sins in verse 24, the second part. Look at this. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Peter is not predominantly in this passage thinking about the satisfaction of God's justice and forgiveness brought to us by the cross. That's not what Peter's thinking about here. What Peter's thinking about here is the transformation of our lives into the image of Christ. And that, too, Peter is telling us, flows from the cross. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Jesus bore our sins in order to bring about a radical transformation of our lives. That we might die to sin and live for righteousness. That's talking about a radical transformation of a person's life. That radical transformation is first expressed here negatively. That we might die to sin. When we realize the scripture's teaching that that we call total depravity... The greatness of this saving undertaking cannot be overappreciated. By total depravity, we don't mean every person is as evil as they can possibly be. We don't mean that. Rather, we mean that everything about us, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our reason, our motives, our actions, everything about us has been affected by sin. That's what we mean by total depravity. Sin has affected everything that we are. You know, it's like you have a a, a glass, a clear glass, and it's filled, let's say, very pure distilled water. And then you drop, you know, three drops of black ink into it. And what happens? There's no water in that glass any longer that hasn't been tainted. 
hasn't been affected by those three drops. There's not some little corner over here that is still pure. Every bit of that water has been affected by those three black drops. That's what we mean by total depravity. Everything about us has been affected by sin. And when we fell in Adam. But here the gospel says, there's a way to die to sin. (laughs) There's a solution. And it comes to us through the cross. This is a tremendous, stupendous undertaking that we should die, die to sin. So when God sets about to accomplish this purpose in us, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, that's just a stupendous undertaking. To die to sin, to die to a thing, means we are simply have nothing more to do with it. We have nothing more to do with it any longer. And that it cannot exert an influence over us. That's what it means to die to something. We are dead to it. If I die to chocolate, (laughs) it has no effect on me anymore. (laughs) I am dead to chocolate. Okay? It has no effect on me anymore. When you're dead to a thing. I don't know about you, but as a sinner, boy, this sounds pretty good. To die to sin. That's exactly what I need. Oh. As a child of Adam, that's exactly what humanity needs. To die to sin. And what the gospel is telling us, that is exactly what God provides. That we would die to sin. That's what it means. We're dead to it. It describes a state of freedom from sin. It describes a state of freedom from the mastery and the bondage of sin that Jamal read about in Romans chapter 6. Being dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Our old man was crucified with him. That what? The body of sin might be done away with. That's the basis of our sanctification. We don't sin. We don't desire to sin. We become dead to it. Now we need to carefully think about this. Christ bore my sins and died that I might die a different type of death. Christ bore my sins and Christ died so that I might die a different type of death. A death to sin. Just think about that. Just meditate on that. I mean it. Go do that. And you try that and see. If you don't experience power. Okay? 
Yes, Christ bore my sins and died for me that I might die a different type of death. And that is a death to sins. Just think about that. You know, you and I need to engage in this warfare against our sin based on the gospel. And, and we're right at the heart of it in this text. This is how you engage that warfare. What a provision we have here. Expressed positively, Peter goes on, Christ bore our sins, what? That we might live for righteousness. Christ died for me that I might live a different type of life. That I might live for righteousness. Did not Christ say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's, that's a wonderful promise of the gospel. They shall be satisfied. How is it that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied? How is that promise going to be fulfilled? By Jesus Christ bearing our sins in His body upon the tree. That's how it's going to be fulfilled. By us dying to sin because of His death. That's right. What does it mean to live for righteousness? Defining righteousness does not begin with man. It begins with God. Righteousness is defined by God by His character, by His law. You must know the character of God. You must know the law of God. You cannot define righteousness without knowing God's character and law. But we do not need to look very far for a good practical summary of what living to righteousness looks like. It's what Peter has been writing and he's going to write throughout this whole letter. Peter shows us throughout this letter what living for righteousness looks like. Let's just blast through chapter 1 that we've been through. What does living for righteousness look like? Well, loving the unseen Christ. That's what it looks like. Loving the unseen Christ. Greatly rejoicing in hope in the midst of affliction. Not conforming to former lust. Resting your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you. Being holy as God is holy. Having a fear of God which impacts how you live. Loving one another fervently with a pure heart. (laughs) There, that's just chapter 1. we got four more wonderful chapters to go. That's what living for righteousness looks like. It almost made me want to just write a list. Just go through Peter and just complete that list. Just write that whole list like that. What, what wonderful instruction we have in the Word of God. That, that's what loving for righteousness looks like. Just those things listed right there. Living for righteousness. Those things listed right there in, in chapter 1. Now, Peter does something else in this text. And he continues to draw from Isaiah 53. 
And he says an amazing thing. Look at it there in verse 25. Verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, Peter now tells us a healing which every believer receives. There it is. This is a healing that every believer receives. He himself bore our sins, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray. You see, this is done. You're no longer like that. You're no longer a sheep still going astray. You have been healed. This is a healing that's completed at the time of your conversion. You have been healed. And what is it? What is the healing? You're no longer sheep going astray and you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By Christ's wounds, they were healed from going astray. That's right. In chapter, you know, in chapter 1, he described their going astray. They were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile way of life received from the tradition of your fathers. That's their going astray. Living that futile life. They have been redeemed from that. By whose wounds you were healed. This is not a promise about future healing. We don't need to get into all that. We just need to stay in the context and follow Peter. Peter's telling them, Just like you have died to sin, and there's an aspect of that that is completed, that bears fruit. Same is here. You have been healed, done. And the fruit is, you're no longer going astray. That's his point. By whose wounds you were healed. Unconverted men and women are represented as diseased persons in need of healing. That's right. Before we're converted, we're represented as diseased persons needing healing. Spiritual and moral healing. Scripture often uses our condition of being beset by various life-threatening diseases as a figure of our spiritual disease of sin. Isaiah chapter 1 does that. Isaiah 1, 5 through 6. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. 
from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's a description of our sin, our sinfulness, being in that state. And Scripture uses that. We need to be healed. (laughs) Spiritually healed. Morally healed. Jesus' well-known statement to those who dreamed they were healthy, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the means of healing are most surprising. The wounds of the great physician are the means of our healing. By his wounds, you were healed. You see the analogy there? Wounds being healed. From Isaiah 53, we know those wounds. Who inflicted those wounds? Hmm? Who inflicted the wounds? By his wounds, you were healed. Who inflicted the wounds? It pleased the Father to crush him. The Father inflicted the wounds. That's right. Amazing. By his wounds, wounds inflicted by the Father on the Son, Not on the Son. On His Son. Makes all the difference, doesn't it? Wounds inflicted by the Father on His Son. This language beckons us to follow it through, you see. Follow it through. That's what this language beckons us to do. By... His wounds, inflicted by His Father, you were healed. Think about this for a moment. You lie on a sickbed. You're terminally ill. And you lie on a sickbed. Another comes along. Another's wheeled in. Another comes along, and as you lie in that sickbed, another comes along and lies near you, and you go, what's going on? And as wounds are inflicted on him, as you lie there helpless, you begin to be restored to health. The guy next to you, filled up with wounds, and dies. And you lie there. You do nothing. And you 
are made alive and restored to health. By His wounds, you were healed. That's right. I'm not going beyond the text. I'm just following the words of the text as to what has taken place here. Praise God. God has given it to us in so many different ways. He's explained it to us in so many different ways. And this is one of them. By whose wounds you are healed. So, Peter speaks of this healing as having been accomplished. Peter assumes he's not making a controversial statement. He assumes his readers, with a moment's reflection, will understand and agree with him when he says, You were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He assumes they will agree with that. He assumes experientially they know what that means. They've, exp- they've experienced that. You were like sheep going astray and you have returned. They will remember and realize how sin sick they have been. They will remember that they were a sheep way out there. Getting eaten alive by wolves. They will remember they were the sheep who had gone astray, just as Isaiah 53 states. That's right, Peter. You're right, Peter. That was me. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's right, Peter. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They will remember that they are the sheep who had gone astray. They will also remember when they first knew they needed a cure or they would perish. They would remember that. They will remember when it first appeared to them that Jesus Christ on the cross and that Jesus raised up from the dead and that Jesus at the right hand of God was the sure cure they so desperately needed. They will remember when they realize that. For every real Christian, a moment's reflection on this statement, by whose wounds you were healed, is greeted with a hearty amen. A hearty amen. Indeed, this is true. Thank God. That's right. That's the healing. No longer going astray. So, how is it with you? What is your experience with the gospel of Christ? Does what Peter say resonate? Oh, I hope it does. I trust it does. Does it resonate? Now, this is great news for sinners and saints. This is great news. 
We may not understand it all, and we certainly don't. But the power of Christ on the cross will sanctify and revolutionize your life and will cause you to die to sin. I realize there's some complexities in how we precisely work that out. But there's no misunderstanding about what these texts are saying about the power of Christ's death and resurrection. And it's more than forgiveness. And that's some of the theological issues that we're going to have to do on the side. But brothers and sisters, and even if you're here this morning and not converted, there is hope. It doesn't matter how powerful your sins are. Through the cross, you can die to them. Through Christ crucified and risen, it doesn't matter how powerful your sins are. Through Him, you can die to them. You can be set free. Romans 6 is going to use that terminology. That's the healing that we need. And I'm not denying that God... We've seen many people healed in our congregation. But that's not what's going on here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Don't despair. Listen to me. Christ is the perfect, powerful Savior. He not only saves you from the guilt and the punishment of sin, He saves us from the enslaving power of it. That's our hope. That's our hope. And we have to work our sanctification out from the cross. And the doctrine here in these verses and the doctrine that's in Romans 6 and so forth, this is great news for us as sinners, whether we're saints or whether we haven't called upon Jesus yet to save us. But you can call upon Him any time. You now know what it means to be saved. I've just been describing it. You desire that? It's free. It's free. You desire that? You go to Jesus and say, Lord, Jesus, save me. Save me just like Peter describes in those verses. Just do that for me. Just do for me what Peter describes. In those first two chapters. And Jesus will save you. He will. And saints, brothers and sisters, you're going to succeed. (laughs) You're going to succeed in this battle. And this is why He bore our sins that we might die to sin. So go to work. Go for it. Read Romans 6 again on your own. I don't know what else to say. Ah! You can be transformed. This is powerful. Can leopards change their spots? No, but God can. (laughs) That's right. And God has done it, working through the cross and our union with Jesus Christ. 
which not only has brought us into union with his death, it's brought us into union with his resurrection. That's Paul's argument in Romans 6. It's not only dying to sin, that deliver, not only dying with him to sin, that emancipates us, it's our rising with him in the power of his resurrection that delivers us from the power of sin. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Father and Son, Abraham and Isaac didn't go through with it. But Father and Son, you went through with it. And Lord, what can we say? He was wounded for our transgressions. And by your wounds, we have been healed. And we were like sheep that had gone astray. And we have returned, Lord, because you have brought us and made everything ready to save us. Thank you for your stupendous, indescribable love beyond us to understand these things. How we ask you for a greater measure of the Holy Spirit, as Paul wrote in Romans 5, Lord, as he wrote there, that it is your Spirit, your love is shed abroad in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to give us some understanding of these things. Lord, forgive us. We feel like dead dogs. We should feel these things more. But we're going nowhere else, Lord. You have the words of eternal life. As Peter said, thank you for explaining those words, Lord Jesus, through your apostles. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.